This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agricultural recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the farmers and founders and innovators and investors shaping the future of the agriculture industry. Today's episode, I think, is going to make you want to hop online and buy a plane ticket to New Zealand. We're going to talk to Stu Bradbury. Stu is a strategy advisor for Sprout Agritech Accelerators. And as you probably know, if you've listened to this show for at least a year, I love getting accelerators on here because they stand right at the nexus of innovative ideas, investor interest, product market fit, customer adoption, and they kind of help put those pieces together in a way that hopefully becomes, you know, a sustainable growing enterprise. And Stu's a great person to have on the show anyway, because he actually founded an irrigation company, precision irrigation company in New Zealand. Eventually that was bought by the Lindsay Corporation. So he's been through the full life cycle of a startup from from beginning to exit. We get into that some and certainly talk about the exciting things that are happening in New Zealand. And speaking of the exciting things happening in New Zealand, our five minute farmer segment at the end of this show is with Yana Hawken, who wrote a book called The Lean Dairy Farm. And this is how we bring lean manufacturing principles to any agricultural enterprise. So I think you'll get a kick out of that as well. So by the time this episode's over, you're going to have your plane ticket in hand for New Zealand and your book on the way from amazon.com of the Lean Dairy Farm. Enjoy this conversation with Stu Bradbury and this sort of virtual audio trip to the beautiful place of New Zealand. So agriculture has really been the backbone of uh, of New Zealand for a, for a very long time. People will be familiar with inventions like the electric fence that was from Gallagher in New Zealand. We've also had to come up with a lot of innovation in agriculture in New Zealand. So in the early, early days, refrigerated shipping was actually invented and the first ship was sent from the South Island to Britain, refrigerated or frozen lamb carcasses on it. So we've been innovating for a long time. We have a very, I guess, diverse range of, of products that we create. So New Zealand's very well known for our wool and, you know, traditionally our sheep and wool. But more recently, I guess, dairy has been a big thing and some, some premium meats as well. So, I, you know, I've been, been over in the States a few times and it's uh, pretty common to see New Zealand lamb on, on menus over there as well. So, Absolutely. yeah, we... Uh, we do a lot, and it uh, yeah we've got a we've got a really good climate for growing grass in particular. So we have a lot of pasture-fed animals, and yeah, most of the innovation and things that we've traditionally seen out of New Zealand have been around that pasture-based farming. But now we're starting to see a lot more high-tech stuff as well. And what what is it about New Zealand that has maybe encouraged more innovation in in such a small country? It seems like a lot of innovation from there. What do you think causes that? Yeah, so we often talk about our number eight wire approach or mentality. And for those that aren't familiar with number eight wire, it's a it's a gauge of wire which is quite thick and very pliable and can sort of fashion almost anything out of it to, to fix or, or get something going. And and that mentality comes right back from, you know, the early days of New Zealand. We're a long way from anywhere. So if anything was to go wrong with a, a piece of machinery or anything like that, we couldn't just 
call up the manufacturer or whip down to the shop and, and get it repaired. We'd often have to do it ourselves. And then that translates through to, to just about everything that happens on farm. You know, if, if you saw an opportunity for improvement somewhere, you give, a, give it a crack and have a go at, at coming up with something yourself. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of where it, where it stems from. And we still see, you know, a lot of people with that sort of mentality and approach to, to any pop problems that they come across. Okay. And, and what's your yeah. background? Oh, my background. So I guess going right back, I grew up on a sheep and beef farm. Until I was seven years old, we were share milking on a dairy farm. And then my parents bought a sheep and beef farm. I grew up on that, went off to university. I wanted to study ag engineering, but they dropped that course the, uh, the year that I started. So I, I did mechatronics instead. Very interested in, in the engineering side of things. And then partway through doing my degree at university, I started a GPS farm mapping company. We called it Where's My Cows Farm Mapping. We did GPS farm mapping all over New Zealand. That was around early 2000s. And then from there, I started another company called Precision Irrigation, where we developed the world's first variable rate irrigation system with individual sprinkler control for center pivot and lateral move irrigators. Hmm. So yeah, did that. Then a couple of years down the track, we were approached by Lindsay Corporation in Nebraska, who best known for the Zomatic center pivots. We're very interested in our technology, eventually acquired the business. I uh, stayed on as general manager for New Zealand and Australia, looking after the variable rate irrigation and integrating that into the, the stuff going on over in the States and to the, the plant over there. Stayed on there for about five years before then being approached by Sprout Accelerator saying, hey, are you looking for something different? Would you be interested in helping us out to advise agri-tech startups? here in New Zealand. And I saw that opportunity and thought this sounds really fun. And yeah, so I guess that's the brief, the brief background for me. Yeah. So is is irrigation pretty prevalent throughout New Zealand? We have certain parts of New Zealand. So New Zealand is, there's a mount, basically a mountain range that divides New Zealand almost in half east and west. So the prevailing westerly comes in, dumps a whole lot of water on the west coast and then the east coast is generally pretty dry. So we see a lot of irrigation on the east coast uh, around Canterbury, around Christchurch, that sort of area. And in the North Island, around Hawke's Bay, also a lot of a lot of irrigation there as well. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear more about your entrepreneurial journey, if that's okay. Can you take us back to kind of starting that business, Precision Irrigation. What what prompted you to start tinkering with, with irrigation in general? Yeah, I guess. So So when we started our, this is going to be a bit of a cliche startup story, probably. <laughs> um, when we started our, our, our business, Where's My Cow's Farm Mapping, you know, we were, we were running around the country with GPSs, mapping farms, basically looking for, for cash anywhere we could find it. And a friend of mine, his father started a company selling irrigation and said, hey, I need some, some guys that can come and and install these machines on farms for us. So we, they were importing the center pivots from the States, bringing them over here. And then I ended up basically chucking a, a pivot on the back of a big truck with a crane on it, going out to a farm. And we were sticking up sort of a, a pivot a week with a team of about three people. While we were doing that, we were also going onto farms, repairing pivots where, you know, things had broken or someone had driven a tractor into it or something like that. And became quite apparent that there were there were issues on these farms in the middle of summertime. We'd be driving out to fix a machine or service a machine or something, and there'd be these wet patches, and we were driving out there in four-wheel drive so that we weren't getting our trucks stuck. 
And I thought, hang on, this is just ridiculous. You know, why are, why are farmers paying money to pump water onto areas that are so wet that they're ponding and not growing any crop? So, yeah, I guess we took our farm mapping business where we developed the software to create the farm maps ourselves and said, what if we use this farm map and draw on it the areas where we want to put more or less water depending on, on what's going on underneath this irrigator and then slap a GPS on the end of the machine, a whole lot of valves down it and a computer at the center and control it to turn valves on and off and pulse them to put different amounts of water in different places so that we can even out what's going on in, under these machines. So that was the original idea. And then around about 2007, I think, we, we bought a whole lot of valves and some bits and pieces. We talked with one of the farmers, Brian Bosch was a, was a farmer. He's actually the, the first farmer that I installed a pivot on. And he was sort of talking about how he's got these tracks that the cows walk down to get to the cow shed for milking. And they'd be wet all the time, so he'd be maintaining them. You know, he'd have to bring in metal and, and spread that. And then cows were picking up stones in their hooves and, and becoming lame because uh, they had sore feet. So he saw all these problems, and we were talking talking about what we might do. And he said, how about I pay for the, all, the, all the hardware, and you guys have a crack at making this, this system. So that was our first system that we, that we created, and it worked amazingly well. It was just out at a video shoot last month for our 10-year 10 years since we first started and that machine was still going strong we were standing under it while it was while it was working so so we did that and then another another system I went and talked to a farmer and he he sort of said come and come and talk to me about this variable rate system you've got went up there and talked to him and went away and said hey look I can come up with some some quotes and some more information and whatnot if you're interested and he said no no you've got the wrong end of the stick I want one I want one and I want it by Christmas so we scrambled and, and built our second system. That one was on a pivot with a corner arm. So we had an added challenge of a corner arm going in and out that we had to had to control, valves turning on and off. And then, yeah, I guess from there, we started building that precision irrigation company up. It was only a, a couple of years when until the regional manager for the Australasia region had been keeping an eye on what we were doing because we'd been building these pivots for one of his dealers. And he told me to call in at Omaha and talk to the guys over at Lindsay about what we were doing. So I happened to be going over to the States and called in in Nebraska there and said what we're doing. And, and then the conversation basically just carried on from there to the point where, yeah, another year or year and a half later, the acquisition was made. Okay. And for those listening who may not be familiar with, with irrigation, can you talk about why is this a problem that farmers are willing to pay to have solved you know I, I mean nobody likes mud but it's not really something that you know you'd think a farmer is going to pay to have solved and water isn't that expensive generally speaking so where's the pain point felt for something like that yeah that's a, that's a good question very early on when when I was creating this I sort of thought wouldn't it be great if regulators said you had to use our system in order to save to save wasting water and all of that sort of thing. And one of my, a really great advisor that I had told me right at the start, he said, forget that thought completely, stay away from regulation as much as possible. And I, and I sort of thought that was interesting, but it is something that I've, that I've held onto to this day because his reasoning was that all regulation does is create resistance from your customers because they don't want to do it just because they're being told to. And it also creates competition because everybody sees an opportunity and goes, oh, well, if everyone has to have that, we'll jump on the bandwagon. So, so regulation certainly wasn't, wasn't a driver. What we needed to do was figure out, okay, if we create this product, 
what is it that is going to make farmers or growers, uh, I use the words interchangeably, it's usually usually growers in the, in the States and farmers here in New Zealand. Yeah, um, we, I usually say growers on the West Coast and farmers everywhere else. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know go. if that's even yeah. a thing. It might just be me. Yeah, sure. So, so what we what we did is we said we need growers and farmers to to demand the system and pay for it. So we need to create a value proposition for them. And on in dairy, it was pretty easy because a, a big problem is keeping well lame cows is loss of production. So if we can reduce the number of lame cows, reduce the vet bills, and reduce the amount of time and, and money going into maintaining all the tracks on the farms, there's an there's immediate value proposition there. But further than that, we sort of found that typically in New Zealand, we had about 50% of our customers were dairy farmers, 50% were cropping. And the big one for cropping farmers was increasing productivity. So everybody knows that if you don't put enough water on a crop, you're going to get a, a rubbish yield. You know, it's, it's just not going to perform. What people probably weren't, the good, good growers know, but a lot of people, their, their attention wasn't drawn to the fact that if you put too much water in areas, it has exactly the same effect. So cropping farmers were very quick to realize, hey, if we can control how much water's going on all these different soil types that we're, we've got one single irrigator going over, then we can even out our yield and increase our yields. We started doing work with Massey University and Landcare Research in New Zealand to use electromagnetic mapping to, I guess, scan, scan an area, scan a field, and then correlate the differences that we're seeing in the EM survey to available water holding capacity. And then once you've got that, it's really easy to model all the different areas that you've got under your irrigator and run a soil moisture balance for each. And then, yeah, set the machine going and, and, and start improving your, your productivity. So we, we were starting to see paybacks on, on variable rate irrigation installations. Typically between one and three years, you'd pay the machine off pretty oh, easily. Wow. Yeah, that's, so, uh, that's incredible. I, so I, a value proposition like that, we're, yeah, we're away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big thing in ag. It seems to be a lot easier to develop technologies to diagnose a problem and a lot more difficult to develop technologies to actually implement the solution like like you have with variable rate. Are there ways to do variable rate with other irrigation systems or is it pretty much only pivot? So yes, there are. We concentrate mainly on pivot irrigators and then you've got linears or laterals, depending on where you come from, what you call them, which is, you know, the same thing as a pivot, but the whole the whole machine just runs down a rectangular field. So the hardware's the same, it just doesn't have a pivot point, the whole whole machine's moving. Very common to put variable rate on there as well. And then our sprout cohort this year, we've got a company doing variable rate for fixed grid irrigation. So fixed grid irrigation is when you have a whole lot of posts with sprinklers on them. Typically, you'll use these in, in corners of fields where pivots can't reach, or like we see in the southern parts of New Zealand where it's really hilly. It's too hilly for, for pivot irrigation. So they'll put this fixed grid system over all of the hills. And then their, straight away, their value proposition was, hey, if you've got sprinklers on hills and you turn them off, but well, you think you've turned them off remotely, but they haven't turned off, you, you drive up there the next day and your hillside slipped away. doesn't do very good for, you, for whatever you're trying to grow on the hill. So they're actually creating variable rate irrigation and control and reporting for fixed grid. Very well. cool. 
Yeah. And last question on on precision irrigation, and then I want to talk more about Sprout. But I, I think it's it's always neat to talk to an entrepreneur that's gone through the full cycle of, of developing from scratch and then all the way through exiting. When you first approached Lindsay, were you approaching them to eventually acquire you? No, <laughs> no, I wasn't. I saw that I saw Lindsay as an opportunity. I thought, hey, look, here's a big irrigation company, and if we could start pushing out our solution through their channels this could be fantastic and i guess that's yeah the you know i was i was so naive going into this and which probably i don't know it might have worked to my advantage i'm not sure but you know i went in there with all my youth and enthusiasm and energy and talking about my product and all the passion and everything that you know comes with being an entrepreneur and i spoke for way too long and then sort of towards the end of the conversation or the end of the afternoon when it probably you know I don't even know what the time was, but I looked at my watch and thought, whoops. And yeah, the conversation sort of went, yeah, well, look, from Lindsay's side, we're, we're really interested in this technology and, you know, let's do a bit of work together. And at some stage, you know, an acquisition could well be on the cards. You know, we're, we're really, really keen. And, and that sort of, I guess, surprised me at the time. And I said, well, I have to go and talk to a couple of my co-founders, but hey, yeah, let's carry on this conversation and see what we can do. So yeah, from there, it sort of we, we had some agreements where we would just work together and see how we got on. And yeah, we got on really well. And so yeah, then progressed the conversation to acquisition, you know, a little bit later on. Very cool. No, that's fantastic. How would Precision Irrigation's journey be different if Sprout had been around at that time or was Sprout around at the time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it, it sort of goes along, I've been asked the question in, in a different way is, you know, do you re- regret? selling your baby mm-hmm. and and hey it would have been different this was 10 years ago and at the time you know certainly in new zealand accelerators were uh, they, they weren't really any or many around venture capital wasn't a you know wasn't heard of it was yeah such a young ecosystem here in new zealand and i you know i was completely I don't know whether the right word's ignorant or just I just didn't know about, you know, any of that sort of stuff that, that was starting to emerge and take off. Certainly in agriculture and agri-tech, you know, agri-tech wasn't a thing. So, yeah, I did what I did. And, and, and the way that my co-founders and I thought about it was, hey, look, this is an opportunity and we're going to learn a lot from it. You know, I learned so much through the experience of the acquisition of integrating into a, a large corporate which I now, you know, I can look at others and, and see some, some corporates have done fantastic jobs of integrating things that they've acquired. Some have done terrible jobs of, of, the thing, of integrating businesses that they've, or technologies that they've acquired. And, and I really understand why now. So, you know, I learned so much over that time. Now, if I'd done that again, if it was today, with the knowledge that I've now got after working with Sprout and knowing what resources are available you know, now, now these resources are available and now there's all this experience that so many people have got, I'd certainly do it differently and draw on all of that experience. You know, I had a, I had a, a, a great mentor that helped me through the acquisition process 10 years ago. He'd done a lot of stuff and even just reflecting back on everything that he'd done, things have changed so much now. So yeah, certainly Sprout and the experience that's that's around now would have potentially changed the way I did things. You know, I think I think now rather than having to be acquired by a company, we might have took on a lot more capital and, and stood on our own two feet for a while. 
but hey, who knows? You know, sure. <laughs> hindsight's hindsight's uh, twenty twenty. It is indeed. <laughs> and when you're an entrepreneur and you have been working extremely hard to try to get something going, and the thought of of your vision coming to reality with the resources of a big company, I, I mean, I could certainly see where that would be would be tempting. And of course, the you know successful rewards that come with you know exiting. I. I uh, I don't, I don't fault you at all, but I am curious more about Sprout and, and sort of, you know, the types of resources the program does provide. So maybe for starters, where, where and when did the Sprout Accelerator start? Yeah, yeah. Um, just really quickly, Tim, I just want to answer the question on, on do I, I brought it up myself, do I rec- regret doing what we did, the, the acquisition 10 years ago? And the answer to that is not at all. You know, we've learned so much and it's been a fantastic ride. So yeah, just wanted to preface with that. But yeah, about Sprout, the the owner of Sprout or the entity that Sprout comes out of is, is called The Factory was the biocommerce center and it was a, a an entity that was set up to support development of business in and around our region and the the co-founders of sprout looked at everything that was going on and, and noticed this trend and said hey we're sort of in this agri-tech hub of new zealand all the stuff that we seem to be working on seems to be this this agri-tech stuff and we've got a massive number of people with all these skills that we can draw on and experiences and capability in this region. Why don't we start an accelerator to attract even more agri-tech to this, this area and see what we can do? So that was yeah about five years ago that that discussion was had and, and the idea of Sprout was born. And from there, that's when James, who's Sprout's business manager, started hustling and he got hold of me and said hey look I need somebody to help me out with we're going to have all of these ag tech startups that are going to be coming and working with us and I'd like someone with a bit of experience in in starting a business in ag tech and uh, that can sort of talk the walk. We see a lot of grassroots businesses that you know right from the inception of the business the the idea they've raised nothing some of them haven't even built a team yet. So we'll, we'll look at everyone who's you know, got, got ideas right through to last year, we just helped one company, Biolumic, secure their Series A round of 5 million US. So, you know, we've got a, we've got a really wide scope of who we will look at. And depending on who we've got coming through Sprout at the time, we'll mold what we're, what we're offering to, to what they need. How do you find those those startups that, you know, just are barely getting started? You know, they probably haven't even changed their LinkedIn profile yet. So how do you find those or do they find you? Yeah, probably most of them don't even have a LinkedIn profile, to be fair. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, they, they find, well, a bit of both. We've got a lot of channels, I guess. So we've got, you know, the, the word of mouth thing is huge because, you know, once we've built up enough of a profile, a lot of people are talking about it. But the key channels, I guess, online. And then another key uh, aspect of Sprout, which is a little bit unique, are our corporate partners. So we have a bunch of corporate partners in New Zealand and they're well-known agri-tech companies. So we've got Livestock Improvement Corporation, Gallagher, the, the, you know, the guys that invented the, uh, the electric fence. We've got Fonterra, you may or may not know. They're our biggest dairy company owned by 10,000 farmers and families. So Zespri, KiwiFruit, KPMG, PGG Wrightson, Massey University. So we've got all these corporate partners who have got an interest in Sprout and what's going on in Sprout. And they will often refer people that approach them to Sprout. Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. 
Agmart, who are a, a, a trust that they they do a lot of funding of development, funding and development for leadership and innovation, research and whatnot. So people that approach them, they'll say, hey, you guys should be looking at Sprout. So it doesn't take very long in New Zealand for a lot of people to be directed towards us. Sure. Yeah. And then over the last year or two, we've been saying, hey, we're not just a New Zealand accelerator. We're actually a world-class global accelerator. We've had quite a few people come from overseas, see what we're doing and go, hey, we've never seen anything like this anywhere else. So that's really made us push out and, and say, hey, look, other countries, people doing stuff over there, look at what's going on in New Zealand. We can help you land in New Zealand and get you through some of this early stuff as well. So we've actually taken on two companies from North America, this cohort, and they've, they've flown over once to one of our underground events. They'll be back over here again in a month or two. And we work with them with weekly calls, seeing what they're, what they're up to. One of our guys went over a couple of weeks ago and met with them and their teams. And these US-based companies are getting huge value out of seeing what's happening in New Zealand, how we do things a little bit differently, and taking those learnings home. Well, t- talk more about that difference. What is the difference between Sprout Accelerator and maybe some other ones that they've looked at? Yeah, I guess so. At the start, we sort of took traditional accelerator models and, and looked at them and thought, what can we create here? And Originally, we were taking a a small slice of equity in return for them participating in the accelerator, which is not uncommon. But really quickly, we went, hey, you know what, this small slice of equity that we're taking and the 20 odd thousand dollars that we're injecting into these companies, that's not really moving the needle. That's not what they're looking for at this stage. And what we identified that these companies were actually looking for was access to markets, customers and solid feedback. So what we find, you know, I work with through the irrigation background and my farming background and all my family farming and all the rest of it, it's really quick and easy for me to connect startups with their end customers. You know, I talked to a startup a couple of weeks ago, actually, who were looking at creating a product and then using distributors to push their product out. What they didn't realize was that actually they need to get out there and sell their product first to, to customers harvest all the invaluable feedback that they'll get all the ideas that customers will throw at them all the stuff that they need to know to actually make their product successful which they wouldn't be able to do through using a distributorship model so so that's the first big learning for a lot of customers that come through sprout is hey we need to get out there spend a lot of time with customers i like to put it you need to understand how your product or service affects your customer's life, how, how they're going to live with it. Are they going to wake up in the morning and the first thing they think about is what's going on with, with you know, the startup's product. Log into it, use it, look at it, whatever it happens to be. Is it that critical in their life? If not, why not? Really understand where their product fits. So, so what we do is we connect our startups and our cohort with their end customers with trusted people that we know will give solid feedback, honest feedback and help them out. And as a result, you know, we see a lot of startups come to us with ideas and then they rapidly change those ideas. So they rapidly pivot and yeah, really address problems that the the customers are uh, experiencing. And so, and so in, in that case, is that is that generally because they have an idea based on what they assume the customer wants and needs? And then, then when they actually talk to the customer, they realize... That's not what the customer wants or needs at all, but it is this whole other thing. 
Yeah, yeah, quite often. Yeah, we see it. We see a lot of that. And, you know, I talked to a guy last week who I actually gave him a, a bit of a tune up the, uh, the week before and said, hey, I don't know if you're that serious. You need to talk to this person, that person. You know, I gave him probably a list of half a dozen people and companies that they need, he, he needed to talk to to find out, you know, if what he was working on was actually something really of interest to them. And I spoke to him yesterday and he said, hey, look, you know, I took your advice and I talked to all these people you know, 50% of them said that, nah, what I've got is not of interest at all. And then some other people in different companies that he had never even thought of latched onto the idea and said, this solves a massive problem for us. If you can just tweak it a little bit so that it also does this. And then he says, oh, I never thought of that, but it's so obvious. So, so that's the first thing that we do. And then from, from there, it's a, it's a case of let's figure out how to rapidly test your product with customers, validate it, and create the business model around it. Yeah. And so if, if you aren't taking any equity stake in the companies, do you, how do you make money? Is it through the corporate involvement? Yeah. So, so we, we may take an equity stake in the companies, but rather than upfront at the start, we might make that further on down towards the end of the accelerator. So what we do is we like to, to, to prove our value before asking for, for any equity. So uh, let's say a startup comes to us, we do a whole lot of work with them throughout the six month period of the Sprout Accelerator. And then they say, hey, look, we're, we're looking to raise some, some capital. We want to set up a advisory board. We'd really like Sprout to help us out with all of this. At that point, we will say, okay, this is going to be a different engagement. And we might start talking about taking a, a stake of equity to, to help them going forward. So, and at that point, they know the sort of value that we can offer. So it's a much easier conversation right. for us to have to say, hey, look, you know, we think that, you know, we might be, you know, for, the, for, the, for what you're looking for from us going forward, it might be worth five, 10% of your business. And they'll look at us and go, we've, we've seen everything that Sprout has, well, not everything, but we've seen a lot of what Sprout has to offer and the people that are involved and the, the amazing team that we've got. You know, when I was talking, we were talking just before about the businesses that I started. I'm just one of the team. Others in the team have, have started other amazing businesses as well. So, you know, there's a, a massive amount of knowledge out there. And then so we can have that conversation with the company and then we can talk about, about equity. That's, that's a part of it. The other part of it is that we, for the personal development part where we're cultivating uh, entrepreneurs and, and helping them to grow. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these companies are fall over. Everybody knows that, you know, 80% will, will, will fall over due to no fault of their own necessarily. However, we're, we're spending a lot of time cultivating these op entrepreneurs so that they can then go on to the next thing. And for that, we get support from the New Zealand government. So Callahan Innovation support for the New Zealand entrepreneurs that we're working with. And then our corporate partners also support us financially and, the value proposition for them is that they are getting insight into what's going on, not only in Sprout, but also the the agri-tech, the whole agri-tech sort of, I guess, wider ecosystem where we're part of it. One of the, our team members is keeping an eye on what's going on overseas and networking with other accelerators around the world. And what types of companies seem to seem to be the best fit? Um... Yeah, that's a tough question, actually. <laughs> I guess companies that have a that are working on something that is directly applicable to the New Zealand market—that's where our expertise are. We we know the New Zealand market and the New Zealand way of doing things. 
Hmm. So companies, you know, biotechnologies that have got things to do with plants or with, with, with animal treatments, that sort of thing. You know, we're very pasture, plant, animal intensive over here. Orchards, so horticulture, anything in the horticulture we've got. You know, turners and growers are, are a massive contact that we have that are interested in anything like that. Dairy, dairy is a big one. If you're wanting to do things in dairy technology, you know, it, uh, a lot of dairy technology comes out of New Zealand. So being down here is a is a good place to to start to catch up to what's going on everywhere else and, and to make a mark. And then yeah, sheep and beef is a big one. Yeah, so so we'll look at we'll look at anything as long as we can see, hey, this relates to the value chain somehow and to the New Zealand market, and and we think that we can add value to that particular startup. Hmm. Great. And as far as you know, how companies should who should reach out to you, how they should reach out to you. Let's make sure we make it really clear for anybody with an entrepreneurial venture or an idea of starting one in the near future. How should they get in touch? Yeah. So right now we're we're in a in a current cohort. So we're not we're not taking anyone on at the moment our applications will open in around about july but i would encourage anyone to jump onto our website sproutaccelerator.com and then on on our uh, website you can sign up to our community newsletter and that will let anybody know when the next cohort will be opening up what we're up to we have bits and pieces about what's going on and around new zealand it's just a, a really handy newsletter to be to be on and then as soon as the, the floodgates open yeah absolutely apply for it for Sprout Accelerator. Fantastic. Stu, this has been great. I mean, it's not every day I get to talk to someone who who started a company, sold a company, and advises so many different startups. Uh, and also, it's just interesting to learn about New Zealand. So, I really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I didn't mention, I'm also, I, I call myself a hobby farmer. I've, I've got a beef farm as well of my own. So, you know, we are, we are well connected into what goes on in New Zealand. Stu, thank you again so much for being on the show. For those of you listening, I highly recommend you go check out what they're doing at the Sprout Accelerator by going to sproutaccelerator.com. And we're going to stick with the New Zealand theme for our five-minute farmer segment here today. This is the segment of the show where we profile an agricultural producer who's not only doing something interesting on their operation, but has an offering, something that we can go purchase from them to support the future of agriculture. This comes from me thinking about what are ways that I could create an immediate call to action with this show, something I advise you to do if you want to directly support the future of agriculture. And I'm glad to bring these individuals on the show. In the past, we focused on producers that have a food offering that you could buy right away, which the majority of these will be. Today's, I wouldn't advise eating but it is great food for your mind. We have on the show Yana Hawken. Yana comes from a mechanical engineering background and started her career working with Toyota, which you may know has been a pioneer when it comes to things like lean manufacturing principles, where she became an expert at sort of these lean principles and started applying them elsewhere in a consulting practice. And so after years of consulting, you can imagine this was all fresh on her mind when her and her husband, Matt, returned to his family family dairy, Thousand Cow Dairy in New Zealand. And if all this is sounding familiar, Matt Hawken, Thousand Cow Dairy, New Zealand, it's because Matt Hawken actually has been on the show before talking about his Nuffield scholarship experience clear back in episode 63. So you can go back and check that out if you'd like. But what's interesting here today is Yana's going to be talking about her revelation 
of bringing lean principles to production agriculture and really to any small business. She has decided to write a book, which is available right now on Amazon called The Lean Dairy Farm. But before you turn this off thinking you're not a dairy farm, this really applies to everyone. And she's got an interesting story about when she started to develop the connection between what she was doing in her corporate career in lean principles and farming. So it was when we first came to to the farm in 2013. I remember one time in the middle of winter, it was calving season, which is the time when cows carve their, their little calves. My husband was out calving a cow in the middle of the night. He went off at about 10 p.m. at night. I was six months pregnant, so I went to bed. And then at about midnight, I woke up and I um, there was no sign of Matt. So I phoned him and phoned him and I couldn't get a hold of him. So I thought, well, he's probably busy still helping this cow. I went back to sleep and about two in the morning, I woke up and still no signs of Matt. Phoning, phoning, no signs of Matt. So I thought, well, I'm going to go and check on him. So I got into my dressing gown, put my Crocs on and was running around in the in the rain and hail and wind uh, out in the, on a cold winter's night trying to find Matt and I found him in one of the dairy sheds trying to help this cow and he, he goes go try and find the carving pulleys I had no idea what they were and he said they're in the other shed somewhere so I drove over to the other shed and running around trying to find the carving pulleys and I thought this is just ridiculous why isn't what you need right where you need it so that you don't have to run around in the middle of the night looking for things and I, I think that was probably my aha moment where I I was thinking this is just madness. Farming absolutely needs some of these really simple common sense lean principles to really just help simplify the processes, make things easy for people, reduce the time it takes and those kind of things. Anyone who's worked around production agriculture or, or any small business for that matter, I'm sure has had that experience of things just never being where you need them to be when you need them. And that's just one small example of where lean manufacturing principles might help. Lean manufacturing or, or lean principles is a methodology used in, in many industries that's really based on a culture of continuous improvement and eliminating waste out of all processes involved. And Yana brought up a really interesting point to me which is, she said, you know, roughly like 95% of what takes up all of our time is not adding value to the customer. So she used herself as an example in dairy farming. You know, you're when you actually extract the milk from the cow and deliver it to the customer, that's the that's what the customer values. Everything else is kind of leading up to that point. And in that 95%, there's certainly a lot of waste that could be taken out. Now, the more skeptical among you out there might be thinking, sure, lean manufacturing and lean principles sound great for large corporations like Toyota that employ hundreds of thousands of people and need really rigid processes, but that has nothing to do with me. It wouldn't work in my small business. Well, not true, says Yana. I've had a huge interest from farmers across Ireland and the Netherlands, which are big dairy countries. And those farms are very small. So they're 50 to 100 cow farms. So it's very hard to imagine. Very small businesses, basically husband and wife businesses. And they have absolutely loved this. They've had a huge interest in the book and they really love using lean in their own businesses because lean applies to every type of business. And in my consulting work as well, I've worked with not only big corporations but also with lots of small business like businesses such as accountancies, mortgage brokers, even cafes, small businesses like that and these principles absolutely apply to small businesses just as much as they do to large ones. 
Yana shared the example with me just recently on her dairy, which, as I said earlier, is a thousand cows and eight employees in New Zealand, that they decided to incorporate some lean manufacturing principles into their dry off process. In fact, treating it kind of like an assembly line where the car comes through and everything happens to them. Through this, they were able to reduce the time it took for this process by half and in her mind, improve the overall experience for the cow and hence improving animal welfare. But I asked her though, what's the hardest part about seeing where waste can be cut and making these changes? Probably the biggest thing is really the people and the culture. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. The really challenging thing is ensuring that the whole team, if you are working with people, obviously if you're a one-person business, it's much easier provided that you're committed and disciplined around it. But if you have got a team, it means that the whole team needs to be on board. You've got to ensure that you've got the engagement from the whole team to make sure that it sustains because it's only when it sustains that you'll really see the reward from all of these, implementing all of these tools and principles. So if you're in any aspect of production agriculture or hope to be one day, highly recommend you pick up this book, The Lean Dairy Farm. And even if you're not, if you're in a small business like me that's indirectly related to production agriculture, I still think that the simple, practical examples that you're going to read in this step-by-step guide will take you through the how to think in this way, the lean principle way. It'll provide super practical examples and even action items of what to do once you've learned them. So go to amazon.com, pick up the book, The Lean Dairy Farm, or you can learn more about it at theleandairyfarm.com. Let's support this agricultural producer who's trying to make everybody more efficient and more sustainable in their operations. Thank you so much to Yana Hawken for being on the show. I hope you'll go pick up The Lean Dairy Farm today. And this wraps up our episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. As always, I really do appreciate your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I I just think it's amazing that people are entrepreneurial and intellectually curious enough to want to consume this content on a weekly basis, and I really do appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another agricultural innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey,